0: Well, now I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open it somewhere in the middle where hopefully you will find Psalm 1 or the book of Psalms. Just take your Bible, open it to the middle. You'll probably land in the Psalms. We're looking at the first of the Psalms, Psalm 1. Uh, if you land somewhere in Proverbs, flip backwards a few pages until you get to Psalms. Psalm number 1. This Sunday begins a, uh, a short series in the Psalms, a series called blessed, and, uh, and that will become, uh, the reason for titling the sermon series that way will become evident almost immediately. Uh, we're going to be looking at four psalms in the month of June, Psalms 1, uh, 32, 84, and 112, and in each of these psalms, the phrase, blessed is the man or blessed is the one, appears uh, fairly prominently in each of those psalms, and so it's kind of a common theme, a melodic tune uh, that is played through each of those four psalms. Now that word blessed, which appears in those four psalms that we'll look at uh, and is the title of the sermon series, blessed is a a word that means in the Bible something like happy. Happy is the one who fill in the blank in uh, in different ways throughout the psalms that we'll look at. But the definition of blessed, meaning happy, kind of falls short in, in, in adequately conveying the divine correlation, the divine source of this happiness, Uh, There's a a note, an explanatory note in the Net Bible that I think defines it well. Uh, The Net Bible gives this note about blessed. Blessed is a word that often refers as a stand-in for the concept of happiness that comes with God-given security and prosperity. Happiness that comes when God gives security and God gives prosperity. Blessed is the one. Now, if you were organizing, I wonder, a, a book of songs of your faith, of the faith, what song would you put first? Uh, just for, for fun, I uh, have a couple of hymnals that sit uh, on my desk, uh, older ones, and Pastor Danny has several more in his office. And so I perused those and I invaded his office and looked through all of his hymnals to see in, in, in Baptist hymnals and non-Baptist hymnals, who, uh, what song came first in, in, in that hymnal? Which one was number one? And uh, among several Baptist editions of hymnals, Holy, Holy, Holy was the first hymn that appeared. Not so in the most recent Baptist hymnal and not so in, uh, in, in several other non-Baptist hymnals. Uh, there, there were a couple that I looked at and I asked Pastor Danny, why in the world is this one number one? There was one hymnal that actually had hymn zero in it. Uh, I don't know how you have hymn zero. It was hymn zero and then hymn one A and then hymn one, which makes me wonder. What, just start with one. I don't know why you need zero, but that's a whole other thing. So if you were compiling a songbook of the faith, what song would you put first? Would it be your favorite song, the song you always sing, the song that always comes to mind? Would it be the most important song to your theology, to your relationship with God, to what you would want anybody who's going to sing songs in this book to to know? Would it be the most important song? Would it be the most popular song? Maybe not the song that you like to sing the most, but the song that most other people like to sing most. Would you put that one first? Or would you put a song at the front that sets the tone for everything else? Which is to say, if you sing this song well and you sing this song rightly, you'll sing all the rest well too. Well, Psalm 1 is a psalm like that. Psalm 1 is a psalm that stands at the front of the Psalter. That's a way of speaking about the collection of 150 psalms in our Bible. Psalm 1 stands at the front of the Psalter as a gateway to the entire collection of the 150 psalms. It's not the longest one. It's not the shortest one. It's it's not even the one that maybe carries even the, the theological center of gravity in the psalms. But it's one that tells us how to read the psalms well. Psalm 1 sets a pattern for accessing all of these songs and poems about God and His relationship to His people and His work in the world. Psalm 1 helps us to understand the rest of the Psalms rightly so that we might gain all that we're meant to gain from them. In fact, if you don't get the the main idea of Psalm 1, you won't get the main idea of any of the other 149. Furthermore, Psalm 1 is a a special kind of psalm. It falls into the genre of wisdom psalms, meaning that this is a, a song, a poem, a Hebrew poem, that intends to point the reader to a way of godly wisdom and a manner of life that God has set His blessing on. That's what wisdom psalms do. They point us in the direction to follow that is pleasing to the Lord and good for our lives. Psalm 1 in short, tells us that the man who roots his life in a love for God's commands will bear abundant spiritual fruit in life, and that he'll be able to stand with confidence before God on the day of judgment. In contrast, the psalm tells us that the wicked are not so, for their life's uh, pursuits and efforts will blow away like chaff in the judgment, and they will perish before the holy God. The way of wisdom, the way of wisdom, is to love God's commands. And so the main idea of Psalm 1 is very simple. That there is blessing from God, there is happiness that comes with God given security and prosperity, blessing from God for those who love His Word. If you're taking notes, you write that down as the main idea. There is blessing from God for those who love His Word. Now, as we see the source and the path of blessing in Psalm 1, leading ultimately, as we survey all of Scripture, as we, lead it, as we see it leading ultimately to Jesus. My my hope and intention is that we would find our joy and our delight in Christ so that we might know the fullness of happiness that comes from God through Him. There is blessing from God for the one who loves His Word. Would you stand with me as you're comfortably able as we honor God by reading His Word, Psalm number 1. The psalmist writes, Blessed is the man. nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous for the lord knows the way of the righteous but the way of the wicked will perish this is god's word you may be seated there is blessing from god for those who love his word you'll have to excuse my voice this morning caught a head cold this week which is super fun in the summertime and now my voice is going to go and so i probably won't be able to talk at all this week it's a good thing i'm not teaching a vacation bible school class and uh, all god's people said amen My dad actually said it. Thanks, dad. There's blessing for the one who delights in God's word, who loves God's word. Psalm 1 tells us this uh, over the course. And I just have to admit, the Psalms are all poetry and preaching poetry is weird. Like taking a love poem, like if I were to write a love poem to my wife, sorry, babe, I'm not that good. But if I ever did, if I wrote it down and then I read it to her and then I had to explain to her all of the things that I just said in the poem, it would totally like undercut the purpose of it. So I have to admit, preaching the Psalms is kind of weird because the, the, the poetry of the Psalms is meant to carry the, the, the intention, to carry the meaning along, but yet it's God's Word and we want to proclaim it. Psalm 1 tells us first about this blessing that comes for the one who loves uh, God's Word. It tells us, first of all, where blessing is found. Verses 1 and 2 tell us where blessing is found. Now, the Psalm is kind of funny because it starts by telling us not where blessing is, but where it isn't. Tells us where blessing isn't in order to get us to know where the blessing is. First of all, blessed is the man, the psalmist says, who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Walking in the counsel of the wicked is not a path, is not the way to blessing. Walking, we know, is a, it's an idiom, it's a turn of phrase for, uh, uh, for summarizing the way that you live and act in the world, the decisions that you make, and the wicked that are mentioned here in verse 1, these are the ungodly people. There is not blessing from God, there's not happiness to be found from God among those who live according to the advice of the ungodly. It's not there. Where else isn't it? Blessing is not. Uh, does not come by standing in the path with sinners. There was in the ancient day, uh, the, the common cultural uh, practice that the city gates would be the place where lots of business got done. People would stand outside the city gates to adjudicate legal matters, to, uh, to, to make real estate transactions, to, to conduct commerce and business. They would stand at the city gates and they would, uh, there on, a, on the road that goes into the city and conduct their business there in a public place. And maybe that the psalmist has this picture uh, in mind as he's talking about blessing not being with those who stand in the path with sinners, who conduct business in the presence of sinners or sinful business along with those. Standing in the way with sinners looks something like loitering with those who are on their way to sin. Blessing isn't there. Neither is blessing, third, to come to us by sitting in the seat of scoffers, sitting in the seat of mockers. Some translations emphasize being in the assembly of those who mock and scorn others those who laugh in derision of people that they despise. That's what mockers, that's what scoffers are. And to sit with them means to plot along with them, to laugh along with them at those that they are scoffing, to, to deride those that they would seek to, to diminish along with those who are doing it. So blessing is not does not come by walking in the counsel of the wicked, nor standing in the path with sinners, nor sitting in the seat with scoffers. Did you notice the movement of this first verse? This first verse moves, it slows us down with each step. We go from walking to standing to sitting. And the level of wickedness, level of sinfulness in in each line of that first verse increases along the way. From living by ungodly advice to plotting with the ungodly at the end. Blessing, friends, is not here. By contrast, the psalm tells us that blessing is for the one who delights and finds joy in The instruction in the law of the Lord, literally in the Torah of the Lord. Torah is the Hebrew word for instruction. It's a word that is used to to commonly describe the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy, the Torah, instruction, law, the book of Moses. But that word Torah, instruction, can also just mean more broadly everything that God says, all of his commands. And I think that's what the psalmist has in mind here. That the one, the, the one who delights in God's law is not just the one who delights in Genesis through Deuteronomy, but the one who delights, who finds joy in everything that God has said in all of his instruction. This is a way of saying that there is blessing for the one who delights in everything that God says, in all of his word. What is ultimately the purpose of God's instruction anyway? Well, God's instruction, his law, even in the first five books of the Bible, is not given to his people as a to-do list. Now, if you read it long, wrongly, you'll read it like a to-do list. I have to read, if you read it like a Pharisee, you'll read it that way. I have to live my life this way. I have to do all of these things perfectly. And then if I do, I'll have righteousness with God. Now, that's not an entirely wrong way to read it. But if you read it that way first, it'll take you in the wrong direction. First of all, the law is given not to give people a to-do list. The law is given to reveal God's holiness and our sinfulness and our need to fight sin at every moment. And our need ultimately of forgiveness of sin that can only come from a holy God. God's instruction, friends, ultimately is not to give us a to-do list to do. God's instruction is ultimately to point us to Himself and our need of Him. Blessed is the one who delights in all that God has said because it's all about Him. The second half of verse 2 intensifies the first half of it. His delight is on the law of the Lord and on His law He meditates day and night. In the same way that verse 1 intensifies and slows the action from walking to sit, uh, uh, st- uh, standing to sitting, so verse 2 slows down from delighting in God's law to meditating on it. It's not just the one who reads God's word with gladness, but it's the one who slows himself, herself to meditate on it that finds blessing in it. Now, when we talk about meditating on God's Word, we don't, we don't mean like Zen Buddhist meditation where you, you sit and you try to rid your mind of every thought. That's not what it is to meditate on God's Word. Rather, to meditate on God's Word is to fill your mind with every godly thought about His Word to take his word and to roll it over in your head, frontwards and backwards and side to side, to explore every beautiful facet of his word so that we might understand it fully, so that we might enjoy its its savor and its sweetness uh, in as much as as God has intended for us to do. To meditate on God's word is not to think nothing about it. It is to help us to think rightly and to think in a godly way uh, about his word. Blessed is the one who meditates on his law day and night. Now, Psalm 119 is not the literal center of the Psalms. That would be Psalm 75 or 76, depending on where you split the baby. There's 150 Psalms, so you cut it in half. It's 75, but anyway, whatever. The literal center of the Psalms is Psalm 75, but Psalm 119 is kind of the center of gravity of the Psalms. Psalm 119 is the, the theological center of balance for the Psalter. It's a 22 stanza acrostic poem about the wonder and joy and blessing of God's Word. Listen to how Psalm 119 reflects on the delight that there is in God's Word. Psalm 119, verses 1 to 3. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. That sounds familiar to Psalm 1, doesn't it? Blessed are those who keep His testimonies, who seek Him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in His ways. Verses 14 to 16. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Verses 92 to 96. By the way, any chapter of any book in the Bible that has 96 verses, you know, is a pretty long one. Psalm 119, 92 to 96. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. I am yours. Save me, for I have sought your precepts. The wicked lie in wait to destroy me, but I consider your testimonies. I've set a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. Verses 97 to 99, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. Verses 103 to 104, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Blessing is not found by pursuing what we think is most fulfilling. It's found by delighting in what is truly delightful, the knowledge of God as he reveals himself to us in his word. But the end of God's word is not just words. The the goal of God's communication or where all of God's word is heading is not just words. It's not just instruction. The end of God's word is ultimately a person and not you or me. The person that all of God's word is pointing to ultimately is Jesus. If you don't believe me, hear the words of Jesus. In Luke chapter 24, verses 25 to 27, after Christ has been crucified and resurrected, he appears to two of his disciples um, along a a road to a, a town called Emmaus. And he talks with them for a while before, uh, without them realizing who he is. And in Luke 24, verse 25, Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus says, all of God's word is about me. It's pointing to me, my sacrificial death and resurrection for sinners. Further in Luke 24 verses 44 to 45, Jesus meets with the 12. He's resurrected. They see him. They recognize him. And he said to them, Luke 24:44, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So, God's word, his, his law, his instruction, isn't just, doesn't just give us a to-do list. It points to himself, to his holiness and our need of him. And Jesus himself says all of the scriptures are pointing to him and fulfilled in him. So for us to delight in the law of God is not just to delight in the words on the page, but to delight in the person that they are ultimately pointing us to, Jesus the Christ. Blessing from God is found in delighting not just in the word of God, but also in the one whom the word reveals our Savior. Psalm 1 verses 1 and 2 tells us where blessing is. It's found in joy in the Word of God and where it gets us. This morning, I encourage you, delight, find joy in God's Word, not just by reading the words, but by reading it to see Jesus more clearly. Read God's Word to see Jesus more clearly. The psalm tells us not just where blessing is, but also what blessing looks like, verses 3 and 4. What blessing looks like. Blessing, the psalmist says, looks like life. And not just any kind of life. It looks like the life of a healthy, well-watered, fruitful tree. Every time I, I drive through our city uh, over the great divide that is the Rio Grande River, every time I drive over the Montano Bridge or the, the bridge that goes uh, uh, over Alameda, I, I always have to take a moment to take my eyes off of the road, just briefly, to look at the, at the bosque and all of its beauty and and. Uh, You know, credit to the city for doing a lot of cleanup in the Bosque over the last several years to get it as healthy as it is now. But I'm regularly stunned by the size of these massive cottonwood trees that make their home right there in the wet soil next to the river. I mean, mean, their trunks are bigger than I could stretch my my arms around. They're they're rooted in ground far below the bridge, and they tower even over me in my car. They're beautiful trees even now. They're just all uh, aglow and awash in verdant green uh, uh, leaves. And at some point in time, they'll shower our city with cotton. And children from other states will think it's snowing. These trees next to the river are absolutely beautiful. The blessed life that awaits the one who delights in God's word, though, is even better than this. Blessing looks like not just a healthy tree along a river, but it looks like a healthy tree alongside a healthy river. It's a beautiful tree that can be reliably trusted to bear good fruit and useful fruit in its season, season after season. And it's a tree whose leaves never wither. I've not met that tree. In fact, I have a tree in my backyard that is the exact opposite, whose leaves are always withered. It's dead. I got to cut it down. This tree, the, the, the life of the, of the one who is rooted in God's word and where it is ultimately taking them is full of life. This is a picture of the one who loves God's word and where it leads him. It, it ultimately leads to a place of perfect God-given prosperity. And prosperity is not in having stuff right biblically prosperity is not having riches or a healthy healthy 401k or uh, lots of money in savings or just the right house that you've always wanted to buy or the perfect car that's not prosperity biblically prosperity biblically is to be glad and content in everything that god has given to you and everything that he has withheld that's biblical prosperity and biblical prosperity looks like a tree planted by streams of water that bears fruit in its season and never withers when we read about this picture of blessing, you might have in your mind echoes of the tree of life in the Garden of Eden, or that same tree as it's replanted in the new heavens and new earth in Revelation 21. But I think the better image for this tree of life is not, the, the, uh, of the tree in, in Psalm 1, is not the tree of life in the beginning or the end of the Bible. I think the better image, the better reference for this image is that of Jesus. He is himself the blessed man that this Psalm speaks about, who not only loves God's law, but who fulfills God's law perfectly. More than that, Jesus is the perfectly righteous man who is not only planted by streams of water but who himself provides streams of living water to nourish the soul of the ones who believe in him as he says in John 4 and John 7. Yeah. Jesus is himself the one in John 15 who sa- that says whoever abides in him will what? Bear much fruit. Blessed is the man who delights in the law of God. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields fruit in its season. Blessed is the one who finds his life rooted in the blessed man of all blessed men, Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. And just as we get one picture of what blessing looks like in verse 3, we also get an image of what the life of the wicked looks like, in case you are wondering. It does not look like a tree by streams of water. It looks like chaff. Chaff is is that dead, dusty, useless stuff that's sifted out from grain at harvest time, that that when the grain is threshed, the chaff blows away as the kernels of grain falls to the ground to be used and ground into, into flour. Chaff is useless. The life of the wicked, we see, is not fruitful like the life of the righteous, like the life of the one who delights in God's Word, but their end results in nothing for all their plotting, for all their scheming, for all the evil of the wicked man, his end is nothing. He is less than dust in the wind, Scripture says. You may be saying, I hear you, but what about all the wicked people that I see who seem to be prospering today? What I see in the world is the opposite of this psalm. What I see are rich people getting richer at the extortion of the poor, Uh, who are abusing those who don't have so they can get more for themselves, doing all sorts of unsavory, illegal, unethical stuff, not going to prison, not getting justice, and still getting more rich and more powerful by the day. What's the good of living like this psalm, the way that this psalm encourages, if the wicked are still going to get rich and promoted and excused for bad behavior? Well, that may be true. Assuming that the Bible is only concerned with the world as it is. If the Bible is only concerned with the world as it is, this psalm is not true. But friends, as we read Scripture, we quickly find that the Bible is far less about how the world is and far more about how the world ought to be. Almost immediately as we start in Genesis, we discover that the world is not as it ought to be. But that what, is, what it is, what the world is, is a perversion of God's design. Wisdom and blessing are not just for today, for the world as it is but wisdom and blessing are are for the world as it will be when God makes it new. The success of the wicked today and yes, many of them are by worldly standards successful. The success of the wicked today will turn to judgment before God tomorrow. And the scorn of the righteous today for Christ's sake will turn into everlasting blessing in the age to come. Psalm 1 is not predominantly concerned with the world as it is and what you'll get for your life now but certainly about what the world ought to be and where real blessing comes from, not from stuff, but from the one who creates it all, and it prepares us for ultimate blessing in the presence of God. We see what blessing, what, uh, what blessing is. We see where blessing comes from, or what it looks like, excuse me. And so seeing what blessing looks like, it looks like one who's rooted in Christ, grounded in Christ. My encouragement to you this morning is to do the same, to root yourself in Christ. Christ to root your life, set down roots in the word of God made flesh so that you might bear fruit of righteousness in this life. Turn from your sin, trust Christ, make him Lord and allow him to grow you in his image In the and in the age to come where we will live forever in his presence to make you perfectly holy. Set your sights not on what you can get in this life but on where God is ultimately taking us and find blessing in Christ. So we see... Where blessing is found. We see what blessing looks like. Finally, in verses 5 and 6, we see who it is that is ultimately blessed. Who is ultimately, who is finally blessed? As the psalm closes, we get one more contrast of the two ways, one way of wisdom and righteousness, and the other, the way of wickedness and destruction. And the last contrast in verses 5 and 6 illuminates for us who it is that is ultimately and finally blessed, who receives this happiness of God-given security and prosperity. Final blessing is revealed in what happens on the day of judgment. Verse 5, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The wicked, the psalmist tells us, will not stand in the judgment. And the sinner will not stand among the righteous. Their way, the way of the wicked, like chaff as we just saw, their way comes to nothing. And in the judgment of God, it blows away. The righteous, on the other hand, those who love God's Word and keep it and anchor their lives in His Christ, they stand in the judgment. They stand with confidence before God on that day. These are those who know the true blessing to stand without fear before God on the final day of His judgment, knowing that in Christ, the Word of God made flesh, we have been made righteous. That is to stand in front of God and not fear His righteous, His holy judgment, that's a blessing, To stand before His holy bench as He meets out justice to all who deserve it and to know that justice has already been done on, on your behalf in Christ and that there is no sentence coming your way. What a blessing! What a happiness! What a joy! Those who are ultimately blessed are those who know God and who are known by Him through His Son And the way to know him is through Jesus, who himself says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Christian, you may not feel it today, but you need to remind your heart that your blessing by God is secure. It is certain because Christ has secured it for you. Now, this psalm has something to say even to the non-believer. There's much encouragement for the Christian here, but this psalm has something to say even to the one who doesn't believe yet. This psalm ought to challenge you who are not considering yourself a Christian, to consider who or what is really driving the agenda of your life. This is a wisdom psalm. There's just two ways to go. And each way has its own end. There's a way of blessing in life. There's a way of wickedness and destruction. If you're a nihilist, if you're a materialist, and even of the best sort that says this world is is all that there is, when I die, it's just blackness, emptiness, there's nothing. Uh, This life is all that I have. But even if you're the best sort of nihilist, who says, I'm going to do with the limited time of life that I have before it's all nothing. I'm going to do whatever good I can do today because there's nothing beyond this. We're all just dust in the wind anyway, so it's better to do something to be proud of at the end. If, if that's your pursuit or if that's your, your, your trajectory in life, the way that you see the world, this psalm should jar your conscience. Because this psalm and and the whole Bible is shot through with the assumption that this life is not all that there is. And what's more, not even the good that we do in this life is the very best that can be done. Instinctively, we know this. Instinctively, we know that our very best effort cannot achieve the objectively very best outcome. Try as you might, you'll never end world hunger. Try as you might, in all your effort, you'll never rid the world of poverty. Try as hard as you can, with as many people as you can, and you'll probably never approach travel at the speed of light or faster. Some of our physicists may correct me there, but try as hard as you want, you, you won't be able to do all that is the, the you, to accomplish what is the objectively most good outcome. God's word in this psalm and throughout Scripture really comes to meet you at this point to assert this truth that there is more than this life. And the Bible has the audacity to say to the unbeliever, and you know that. You know that. And you're right. The very best that you can do in this life, with your life, is still not good enough to achieve perfect righteousness for you. Can't even achieve perfect righteousness for others. In fact, even the combined very best of all humanity together can't achieve this. Even if all of us, starting from right now, live perfectly from this moment to the moment of our death, we still have the record of our faults to deal with. So if doing the most good before you die is your driving motivation, you should be utterly frustrated by the fact that there are more powerful and more influential people in the world who do real wickedness that will far outweigh your individual contribution of benevolence. Now here's where Jesus turns that whole problem over on its head. You see, Jesus comes not just as any man, but as the Bible says, as the Son of God. He's God with skin on And he lived a life that Psalm 1 is saying is blessed, is happy. He lived this life better. He he did better than love the law of God. He actually kept the law of God perfectly. John's gospel calls Jesus himself the very word of God in flesh, which is to say that he is the lawgiver who has come as a human. So he's not just a righteous man. Jesus is righteousness in the absolute, incarnate among us. And the irony of his life, is that it led to his death at the hands of wicked men. The kinds of wicked men that we bemoan are prospering in the world today. It wasn't a new problem to Jesus. He died at their hands. And there you have it. The wicked prospering uh, prospering at the expense of the righteous. But where Jesus turns over the problem of the nihilist, the problem of the materialist, is in his resurrection from the dead. If Jesus is really raised from the dead, and you'll have to work really hard to convince me historically or even, even metaphysically that that is not true. If Jesus is really raised from the dead as the righteous lawgiver, then this life and death aren't the end of everything. They can't be the end of everything because life and death was not the end for Jesus. Instead, the end of everything must be to know not just what righteousness is, but to know the one who is so righteous that not even death could hold him. This is the wisdom of Scripture for you. Seek not to do good for the sake of doing good, because that's a lesser and an ultimately incomplete goal. Even in pursuing doing good for the sake of doing good, you'll still miss the point of it all, which is, as God's word says, not to do good. The law is not just a to-do list. It's It's a revelation of God's character. So in pursuing doing all the good you can until you die, you'll miss the ultimate goal, which is to know God, who is himself the very definition of goodness, He's made himself known to us in Jesus. He's the one to whom all the scriptures are pointing. And this psalm, Psalm 1, calls you, friend who is not yet following Jesus, to delight in him, to love him, yeah. to find happiness in the security that God gives on the day of his judgment and the prosperity that he gives in abundant life now and eternal life later, to find all your happiness in him. Yeah, amen. It's a life that's even stronger than death. The life of the blessed man who loves Jesus is the life that continues in his presence even after the final judgment comes for all wickedness in the world on the last day. Life with Jesus is is not just the mechanical aspects of of what the Greek world would call bios. Now, if you want to know the difference, a more detailed difference between bios and zoe, the two kinds of life in, in the New Testament language, you go talk to Tom Fisher, and he will fill up the rest of your week with wonderful details about this. And so I'm indebted to his influence here. In the Greek world, the world of the New Testament, uh, there was this, uh, There were two ways of speaking about life, bios and zoe. Bios is mechanical life. It's breathing in and out. It's your heart pumping. It's eating food and digesting it for energy. Bios is the kind of life that that is demonstrated by every living creature from the smallest uh, uh, single-celled organism to plants to animals to human beings. They all have bios. It's just the mechanical function of life. And for the nihilist, for the materialist, bios is all that life will ever be. Mechanical functions, hearts beating, biological processes, processing. Scripture says there's a different kind of life. There is bios, and we all have bios. Scripture doesn't deny that. But there's another kind of life, a better kind of life, called zoe. Zoe is the kind and quality of life that goes beyond just the mechanical, biometric processes of life. Zoe is a kind and a quality of life that is, that is known perfectly and, and, and experienced perfectly by God Himself and is given to those who are made right with Him in Christ. Jesus says in John chapter 10, He says, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I came that they may have life and have it abundantly, that they might have zoe, a kind and quality of life that comes only from God to those who are united to him by faith in Christ. And I want to give them that life in an overflowing measure. So if you're frustrated with bios and just the day in, day out grind of life that doesn't seem to get going anywhere, it's because your heart is crying out for zoe. For a life that looks like a tree planted by streams of living water that bears its fruit in season and whose leaves never wither. Not like the chaff that's blown away. If you're looking for Zoe, you find it in Christ. Yeah. The one to whom all of God's word ultimately points. The one to whom it is calling all of us to trust, to know, to submit our lives to his Lord. It comes by turning your life away from sin and self-sufficiency and in repentance, turning to, to Jesus in total dependency i have no life apart from you jesus i have nothing apart i have no forgiveness apart from you. i have no righteousness apart from you that's the start of life with him that's the start of the blessed life that the psalms is describing there's blessing from god for the one who loves his word and for the one who loves his word such that he sees christ most clearly in it and through it there's gladness in god to know that you have been made right with god through the righteousness of christ jesus He, the blessed man to whom this psalm ultimately points, the very son of God, stands now ready today to give abundant life to everyone who plants their soul in him. So Christian, walk in the blessing of God, in the happiness that comes with knowing that you have confidence to stand without fear on the day of judgment because you've loved Jesus and you've rooted your life in him. And to my friends today, looking for God's blessing and the joy that this psalm promises, you'll not find it anywhere but in Jesus. The one about whom all the law and the prophets and the psalms speak. I implore you, I plead with you, find your life hidden in him today. Let's pray together.